shit. Um, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> How do we use to start them? Uh, welcome to Trying to Adapt. I'm Ben. And I'm Nora. And today, we're trying to adapt to Netflix's new musical, Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, 2022. Now, it's been a while since we recorded an episode of our Trying to Adapt podcast. The last episode came out in March 2019, I believe. And in the time since then, quite a few things have happened. I went off to study abroad in London for 10 weeks. Then I came back, and then there was a global pandemic, and then I graduated from college, and Nora graduated from high school, and I started grad school, and she started college. Uh, and then... I graduated from grad school and started working, and then Nora went and studied abroad in London for 10 weeks. Yeah, so in that time, so so now we're basically uh, the experts on London, so that information is going to come in really handy when we talk about um, the world of Victorian London um, that we get to see in Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, which is slightly confusingly titled, I think, um, because you might be thinking, I don't know who you are, but you might be thinking of the uh, 1970 musical Scrooge. And yes, this movie does have a connection to that version. It is a it is an ad, ad, an adaptation of that adaptation. So we're getting into uh, pretty complex territory here. Um, however, the addition of the subtitle "A Christmas Carol," um, you know, lets us know that this is not quite the same as Scrooge 1970. This isn't a completely faithful adaptation. So there's some interesting stuff going on there right um, from the get go. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, like, the the very first thing that we took notice of before we even started watching was the fact that this is a original Netflix production uh, that just came out this year. And yet, on December 23rd, we, we go to Netflix's front page and it's not even there. We have to, like, search for it because it's not being, like, advertised or promoted. Yeah, and I get that it's been out for a few weeks, but, I mean, you would think that Netflix would only, like, ramp up its advertising and promotion as the closer we get to Christmas. Um, but apparently even Netflix thinks, perhaps, that this has been a bit of a flop. So, yeah. Uh, so, the movie is rated Y7 for fear. <laughs> for and fear. <laughs> that struck us, because even having watched the movie, I'm still not sure whether that's, like, it's warning you that there's the characters experience fear and that's being depicted and that's something you need to be warned about or whether you will experience fear while you're watching which is probably only true if you are seven years old that also crossed my mind i was also confused about like is the content warning just that fear is in the story or that like you may experience fear yourself so right off the bat uh we start with scrooge's nephew who's got this big musical number about how much he loves christmas uh 
I don't want, and then I'll say right now, I don't want our, um, I, I don't want at least my thoughts to be colored too much by the Letterboxd reviews I read last night, but the one that I can't get out of my head is that somebody said that the whole thing was animated like an ad for a mobile game, and I think that, like, this opening number is, like, particularly guilty of this. Um, as we get this version of Victorian London that just looks, like, almost kind of, like, candy sweet, like, everything is just, like, super bright, super pretty, super polished. Um, it's just nowhere near grimy enough for Victorian London or modern day London. It really looks like no London that has ever existed. Um, it's this extremely, like, bright, happy world. Um, at the, at the very least that Scrooge's nephew lives in, if not Scrooge himself. And then I think we can get, at this point, we can go on to probably the biggest notable thing about this particular adaptation as opposed to all the others and that is that scrooge has a dog scrooge has a dog scrooge like probably the least the person who should least have a dog scrooge has a dog scrooge has a dog and it was marley's dog it was marley's dog and i guess he took care of the dog after marley died the dog is named prudence and see like the very first thing that i thought of when i saw that scrooge had a dog was like okay, they're 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 trying to do kind of a thing like with the Grinch and his dog Max. That's what I figured. I thought it was a Max stand-in. But Scrooge and the Grinch are very different characters. The, right. the the fact that the Grinch has a dog is like a window into the fact that no matter how you know mean he appears to be, he really is. He really has like deep down a soul. Scrooge. In, with Scrooge, that has been beaten down so hard that it's it's just unbelievable to imagine that he has a dog. Well, and also, I mean, or like... Or any, any kind of love in his life at all. Yeah, and, and while I would agree that Max humanizes the Grinch, I think it's also key that, like, the Grinch uses Max as his kind of evil sidekick. Which, like... Is, is weird, though, because Scrooge doesn't seem to have any purpose for Prudence whatsoever. Like, I think it would maybe even make a little bit more sense if, I don't know, somehow Scrooge teaches Prudence how to, like, help him, like, file his taxes? I don't know. But Prudence serves, like, no practical use to Scrooge, and so it's really difficult to imagine him kind of abiding, like, having this creature in his house that serves no, like, practical purpose for him. That just doesn't seem to be, like, his M.O. at all. Right, and he doesn't seem to care about the dog at all. The dog is just kind of there the entire time, and I do mean the entire time because the dog kind of joins him as he's being taken around by the spirits of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. Uh... Which seems unfair, because I don't think the dog did anything to deserve having that kind of lesson taught to it. Uh, but also, like, even at, even in the early part, like, the moment Scrooge bumps into his nephew on the street in an early scene, the nephew just kind of takes the dog with him. Like, Scrooge doesn't even care that, like, his dog is not following him around. So I don't, I don't know, he seems like such an irresponsible dog owner that it seems hard to imagine that he's managed to hold on to this dog for as long as he has. Yeah, I mean, if he's been taking care of it since Marley died, then that's, what, seven years? Is that, how many years has it been? I don't know. I don't know if they explicitly said that. I don't know why seven popped into my head. I, I think it's supposed to be seven in, like, the original book. Yeah. But I don't think they ever said that in this adaptation, so we have no idea. And if you want to know more about the period of the dog's life where it was owned by Jacob Marley, there's an entirely separate movie about that, uh, called Marley and Me that you might want to check out. 
I feel like this is probably the point where we should uh, pivot to just sort of talking about this Scrooge, like, in general. Yeah. Um, because I think, like, well, so, okay, right off the bat, um, the thing that originally, like, drew my attention to this adaptation is that, um, you know, I kind of regret to admit it, but I am an active TikTok user, um, and I came across multiple TikToks. Basically in a row. Tick's talk. Tick's talk. Um, exactly. Like attorneys general. Mm -hmm. um, of people thirsting after this Scrooge. Um, people are calling him a Tumblr sexy man. Um, I really think he should be called a TikTok sexy man because I haven't seen anyone doing this shit on Tumblr. We're witnessing um, the birth of an entirely new phenomenon. We've heard of Tumblr sexy men. They've been around for over a decade now. But here is the very first TikTok sexy man. I really think he might be. Um... Yeah, there, there is just this whole. This is this is a brave new world for sexy men. Um, and Our brave new world that has such strange people in it. <laughs> it has such strange sexy men in it, like Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, and 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 so I think that you know, at, at first when I saw the clips, I was like, okay, you know, I mean, I guess that like you know, he's he's animated in a relatively like conventionally attractive way. He's voiced by Luke Evans, who I guess some people find hot. Um, you know, I, I could sort of see, especially in his, like, past incarnation, he's even more conventionally attractive, just kind of a generic twink, sort of, you know, a la the onceler. Um, and so I, I, I could sort of see it. Um, but I, what I wasn't quite prepared for, though, is how, like, hammy the Scrooge is. Oh, and yeah. I definitely think that that plays a role into, like, his sexy manification, is how kind of, like, theatrical he is in his meanness. Oh, yeah. And, like, I noted this right off the bat is like he has he takes way too much pleasure in being mean yeah he really goes out of his way to like 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 there's that scene where he's talking with like the toy shop owner and he's kind of, he's like toying with this man's life like he's he, he keeps like adding the toy on shop owner. yeah he keeps toying with the toy shop owner um and keeps adding on the amount of debt that he owes him and he really is taking this like sadistic delight in like playing with this man like 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 a predator toying with its prey right yeah he, scrooge is not supposed to have like fun being mean to people he's mean to people because you know like that's how he yeah i i think it's like like the way i sort of see scrooge is that like meanness is just his kind of like mode of like interacting with the world like it's not necessarily something that he thinks to do like he doesn't wake up in the morning and go i'm going to be mean to bob cratchit today but it's just kind of his like his default state of being and like outlook on life whereas this scrooge really does seem to be like a bit of like like act actively plotting like how can i be particularly mean how can i really strike fear in the hearts of people today and i guess in, in a similar vein, uh, we can talk about uh, Scrooge interacting with Cratchit. Yeah. Because, yeah. I don't know if I remember exactly, because we, we watched this last night, uh, I don't remember exactly the details, but, like, the, they were having this conversation, and, like, Scrooge kind of, like, Cratchit said something along the lines of, like, you know, I have kids at home, and Scrooge replied, like, in a way that suggested that he had no idea that Cratchit had kids. Yeah. Um, Which is particularly weird, because in the very next scene, we see that C 
Cratchit's kids are, like, waiting outside in the snow for their dad to be done working. Yeah, so which forces me to conclude that that's just what they do, like, all day. Like, we never really see them doing anything else. So I assume that these this kind of, like, merry band of Victorian orphans... Well, they're orphans and then also Bob Cratchit's kids. They aren't orphans. I guess um, those were two kind of separate groups of kids. I guess, but it kind of seemed like they had some interaction together. Like, just kind of poor kids hanging out around London. And apparently their favorite place to hang out is directly outside Scrooge's office. Um, and... This, I think this kind of leads me into, like, a sort of larger observation that I think I'm going to continually return to is just the utter lack of any kind of subtlety <laughs> in this adaptation. I think that, like, this suffers from what I think a lot of Christmas Carol adaptations do, where, you know, you have to admit that, like, I, I love the original Christmas Carol. I actually reread it recently for a class I took in London. Um... And as much as I love the original story, one thing that I think, like, you absolutely have to admit that it does not contain is a whole lot of, like, ambiguity or nuance. I mean, like, it is Charles Dickens, um, you know, master storyteller, but he is clearly, like, beating us over the head with the same point over and over. And we love the story for that. But the thing for me is that um, I, I find it kind of, like, hard to swallow when adaptations decide that, like, we need to beat you even further like like charles dickens story it's, it's too subtle it's too ambiguous i right. think we People... really need to like draw out the point here and the morals yeah and that that's something that comes up particularly in the way that uh well for one thing we get we get it mentioned right off the bat that uh jacob marley died on christmas and scrooge's sister died on that, christmas that comes as well a we little hear, bit later, I, I think yeah. we hear that more or less in the same conversation right or at the very least i think maybe kind of the next scene yeah because I, I think he says both of those things to his nephew right like in the yeah, office and, I guess and then so. he's like here's why i hate christmas which I, to me i think is just kind of like fundamentally ruining something that i think is kind of important about scrooge's character and i would argue the grinch as well but that's a different season that's, <laughs> that's a different season of trying to adapt um a much shorter one and than... one that doesn't exist right yeah. <laughs> but um i i think that like we seriously do not need to know like why scrooge hates christmas i really like i i don't think that it's particularly important i mean at the same time though like we do know already. Right. Like, the whole thing about Scrooge going into his own past and seeing his own experiences on Christmases of years past, that's, like, kind of the originator of the whole, like, oh, here's this mean person, here's this villain, and then we're going to show you their tragic backstory and why they're really like that. Right. And then by, you know, getting into their, getting inside them and understanding why they're like that, we then, you know pry them apart and turn them good again like this this story is the origin of that and then you see much clumsier clunkier versions of that like with uh like uh how singing killed my grandma in the trolls movie or the recent uh cruella Deville movie where dalmatians killed her mom or whatever i think that's it right just... so so here is like the end of the Ouroboros. The snake is eating its own tail. Yeah, this, tail. this is the Dalmatians killed my mom of a Christmas Carol. And here is an adaptation of a Christmas Carol, which is forcibly implanting this very clunky, poorly executed version of a trope that 
basically kind of originated from the original version of the story in the first place. Yeah, and I think that that, like, that returning to the original really just kind of, like, puts it in stark contrast, like, how much it sucks. <laughs> like, I think, like, when you kind of bring it back to a story that I would argue did it, like, much better in the first place, you really kind of see, like, how far we've come, and in many ways that are, like, for sure worse. How far we've fallen. How far we've fallen from, like... You know, the the idea of, oh, we can, you know, explore this person's background to sort of see, like, maybe why they are the way we are, but we don't necessarily need a kind of, like, you know, one-for-one, like, puzzle pieces, like, ah, okay. See, I, I can only understand why somebody would hate Christmas if, like, the most obvious thing happened to them to make them hate Christmas. Like, I, I can only understand why somebody would hate Christmas if Christmas killed their sister. Which is indeed what happened. Right. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, do we have anything else to say about, are, are we ready to kind of get into the ghosts? I have one, um, I, I think that this goes, I think this is a, a smaller part of my larger beef with the lack of, like, subtlety. And I, I think that one thing that this adaptation does, I think, like, almost kind of unknowingly, that to me sort of ruins the entire point of the story, <laughs> is that, so... You know, the whole point of the ghosts visiting him, and I think in particular why the Ghost of Christmas Past is, like, so incredibly, like, powerful, and I think why the Ghost of Christmas Past comes first, um, is that Scrooge is at least presented to be somebody who genuinely has kind of, like, forgotten his own past. Like, he's not somebody who lives in the past. He's not someone who revisits his own memories, you know? At least not, at least not obviously, at least not outwardly. You know, he's somebody who's kind of closed his own past off to himself, so that he can ignore all those things that once brought him, like, pain and pleasure. This Scrooge, from, like, the get-go, is clearly, you know, obsessed with his past. He tells his nephew that, like, you know, I hate Christmas because my sister died on Christmas. Because Jacob Marley died on Christmas. We see on his desk he has a photograph. Which is a little bit confusing because I'm not sure exactly when Scrooge would have been a kid. I assume, like, the very late 1700s, early 1800s, so I'm not totally sure I got a hold of this photograph. But he has a photograph of him and his sister as children. So clearly his sister occupies a central position in his life. He even, um... One of the more annoying details, I think, in the movie is that he keeps ta taking out this, like, little, like, pocket watch, and then, like, there's a little engraving on the bottom that is, like, from... Like, 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 the watch was clearly given to him as a gift by his, like, former lover. So, like, this is, this is a man who is clearly obsessed with his past. He has constant reminders of the past. And his past bothers him to the point where he is unable to enjoy the present. And I think that that's the exact opposite of what Scrooge is all about. And it's like, yeah, because then we, well, I guess we're getting a, a little bit ahead of ourselves because uh, that, that has to do with the ghost of Christmas past. Right. I guess we need to talk a little bit about Marley, which visually pretty cool. I really liked Marley. A lot of cool visuals there. Uh, Marley looked a little bit less like a mobile game ad than most of the other characters. That's true. I will I will note, uh, like, Scrooge has this dramatic encounter with Marley, and then he, like, wakes up in his bed. So, like, this this is explicitly a dream. It's right. not like, you know, in most adaptations, it's there, like... There's kind of a continuum of sort of, like, is it a dream or is it real? 
Right. And this one kind of firmly takes the side of Dream. At least for the Marley Well, kind encounter. of, yeah, because, like, he... Well, it, it, it's a bit confusing. Like, it, it always kind of has that weird thing where it's like, you know, he's walking around at night kind of getting ready for bed, and, like, he encounters these spirits, and then he wakes up in bed. So it's like, I guess he went... He fell asleep at some point, and that just kind of got elided... Uh, yeah. But in this in this version, it happens twice. He wakes up in his bed after meeting Marley, and then he goes, well, that was crazy. And then the other spirits show up, and then he wakes up in his bed again. Right. So I'm not sure, did the dog have the same dream as him? I guess so. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess that would suggest, like, it wasn't really a dream. Yeah, I don't know, because the, the dog... I, I hate that we're even talking about, you know, the dog. The dog in A Christmas Carol. But the dog does seem to, like, be aware in the morning of, like, what yeah. happened. And, like, the dog just kind of has to take... That, that's, like, the weirdest part, is, like, they decided they were going to commit to having Scrooge have a dog for no particular reason at all. It adds nothing to the story. Except a little bit that we will get to towards the end. Oh god, I hate... <laughs> there is one tiny thing where the dog's existence is actually kind of relevant to the plot, but it's very poorly executed. It's horrible. Uh, but... Like, other than that, there's really no reason for the dog to be around at all. There's no reason for Scrooge to have a dog. And they've just kind of inserted him into this story... Which means that the dog has to just kind of tag along the entire time. And every time Scrooge is getting taken and whisked around in this, like, spiritual realm, the dog has to be following close behind because obviously you're not going to strand the dog inside some kind of uh, purgatorial hellscape. Right. Yeah, we're... <laughs> right, the dog is stuck, like, 30 years in the past. But also, this actually, I'm going to shoehorn this little observation in. Um, so normally in adaptations, it's, you know, kind of, like, like, Scrooge is explicitly told that, like, oh, you can't interact with anything in the past, right? And normally, I think, like, that's kind of taken in the sort of, like, ghostly sense of, like, oh, you know, as a sort of, like, spirit figure, like, you know, if you try to, like, touch things, your hand just moves through them, right. you know, it's like, if, like... if they bother to do that at all. If they bother, but I... like, oh, I'm a specter and I can't physically interact with things. Yeah, a lot of times they don't even bother with that, but I feel like that's kind of the assumption, you know, that, like, if Scrooge did try to interact with things it would just sort of like like he's not on the same plane of existence as them mm -hmm. but in this version when scrooge touches things he gets like electrocuted well to be fair it only happens once i guess that's true i guess he's a quick learner he doesn't he doesn't need to have it's not like a running gag or that's anything they could they might as well i think have. if they were gonna have a gag where he gets electrocuted once they should have kept going with it at least get to like a rule of three <laughs> right so I guess we've arrived at the Ghost of Christmas Past, who is played by Olivia Coleman. God bless her. And is just kind of this weird, like, shape-shifting candle thing. I really liked her introduction because it was kind of scary. Like, she just kind of appears as this, like, mass of, like, candle wax, and then all these, like, faces are kind of, like, traveling through her until we get to, like... See, but then I was kind of disappointed by how sort of, like, conventionally attractive she was. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because, I think we've mentioned before that, like, in the original Christmas Carol, the Ghost of Christmas Past is this, like, very, like, weird, like, gender ambiguous, like, like looks like a child, but also an old man, but also a woman. Um, and here she's just kind of, she, she kind of looks like she's from a mobile game. Um, she, she's just, like, a pretty candle woman. 
Although she does kind of like shapeshift into Scrooge and other oh, people right. from his life, just kind of randomly. And it's like, her attitude is just offensively flippant. She <laughs> kind of is, though. <laughs> she is just like, she had, she knows nothing about Scrooge's life. She's just kind of letting him, like, she's she's leading the way here, in a sense. She's pulling him through time. But, like, she doesn't know anything about him. Yeah. I or, mean, at least, or at least she pretends not to. Yeah, because that's another thing, is I feel like ghosts of Christmas past are generally at least, like, kind of omniscient. Like, I mean, you're the ghost of Christmas past. You should theoretically know everything that's ever happened, right? Just like history majors. Exactly. Um, and... But so, yeah, this, this is a really kind of, like, particularly ignorant ghost of Christmas past. Or at the very least, she's feigning ignorance. Right. And the reason I say, like, flippant is, like, there's one point where, and this is, this is another kind of change that's made to the story. Is like, Scrooge, as a kid, is made to, like, work in order to keep his family out of debt because his father, like ran up all these debts and went to debtor's prison, which is not normally something that happens in Scrooge's childhood. And I do want to point out briefly, because I, I feel like I've seen adaptations do this before, um, and I, I my, my suspicion is that they're just shoehorning, like, Charles Dickens' own backstory into Scrooge, because, like, Charles Dickens famously, like, had to, like, work as a kid because his dad was in debtor's prison, and that's sort of, like, you know, what inspired him to write about poverty. And, and so I have a feeling that, like, that's where they're getting that from, at least, like, obliquely. I don't know if that's, like, I, I don't know if they're stripping that, getting that straight from Wikipedia or kind of, like, through osmosis. Um... But, yeah, I, I I think that that's a particularly interesting change just because, like, you know, Scrooge's financial background, I think, is, like, always a little bit unclear. But, I mean, he, his family seems to at least have enough money to be able to send him to school. You know, yeah, like, he's he goes clearly... To, he goes to this nice boarding school. Like, he's clearly of, like, the middle class. And I think that, like, his his whole kind of, like, orientation, I think, is very he's, sort he's of, not, like, middle he's, class He's not, like, bourgeois. a rags-to-riches figure. No, which no. Which would change his entire backstory dramatically. And then I think that also makes him far more sympathetic than he normally is, you know? That I, I think if he's, like, if, he, if he's had to, like, crawl his way towards money and if he grew up not having and now he has this kind of, like, obsessive need to have, like, I, I think that's an extremely psychologically different character from one who sort of, like, has, you know, all, always sort of, like, has, has just kind of been primed to sort of, like, work in business and maybe just kind of takes that for granted. Right, but then it kind of falls apart when you have this gleefully mean character who is enthusiastic about sending people into the same poverty and deprivation that he experienced as a child. Like, it's one thing for him to have developed this attitude of, you know, screw you, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get to the top to save myself. But it's another thing entirely for him to derive so much enjoyment from doing it. Yeah, and I would argue that a, you know, kind of like, critical element of Scrooge's character is that, like, a lot of his, like, a, a lot of his kind of, like, evilness, if he is evil, it just comes primarily from ignorance. And I think that that's partly why it's, like, kind of so easy to reform him. <laughs> like, I, I think that, like, you know, Scrooge in Dickens's story, I think is, like, relatively easy to, like, feel sympathetic for, because, like, he doesn't really seem to be sort of, like, 
super intentionally malicious. You know, like, he's he's a misanthrope, but it comes from largely just kind of closing his heart off to people. He just doesn't, he doesn't really know people. He doesn't really know Bob Cratchit. And once he gets to see, oh, this is what Bob Cratchit's family life is like, he instantly feels sympathy for him. You know, like, he's not a monster. He just doesn't, like... As it stands at the start of the story, he his his orientation is just not towards people. And it takes kind of, like, actually seeing how other people live, seeing how the poor live, for him to realize that, like, oh, I should help the poor. Right, and so to have a character who's kind of the opposite of all of that, who's lived through poverty himself. Who knows exactly how hard it is to be poor and yet takes delight in, like, making it harder to be poor is, like, a, a far, an extremely different character from, like, the Scrooge that we see in Dickens. And, as we mentioned, a, char- a, a Scrooge who is, who has to be pretty well aware of the way that Cratchit and his kids live, because his kids are just hanging out around his office all day oh yeah and this actually leads pretty well into the next thing i was gonna say which is that in this like first past scene where he's like slaving away at the factory we see kind of like outside the factory window that like his little sister is kind of like dancing and playing around and you know i i think like any viewer who has sort of been like even like half paying attention would think that like oh okay you know she's like you know singing like the same song that like or or, it comes later but but that she's she's like you know dancing and singing and playing around in a way that clearly resembles tiny tim and even then we get a scene where like scrooge comes outside and she's clearly ill so she starts like coughing in a very victorian london way and like scrooge is kind of like like kneels down to like it tells her like to breathe slowly which is the exact same thing that just happened about 20 minutes ago with Cratchit and Tiny Tim outside Scrooge's window. An event which Scrooge must have seen. Right. <laughs> right. And so, but what I what I find almost kind of insulting about this adaptation is that we get this, like, moment of parallel, but then, like, the the movie, like, shows us in kind of, like, you know, almost as sort of, like, a screen that, like, appears in the memory. Like, we get, like, a flashback then, or I guess kind of a forward flashback to, like, Cratchit and Tiny Tim. A so, flash like, forward. A flash forward. So, so in case you hadn't already made the extremely obvious connection between these two characters, this movie just really wants us to be clear that, get it? Get it? Scrooge's little sister is just like Tiny Tim. Yeah, and they're also similar in the sense that these are two very sick individuals who just kind of stand around in the winter cold for hours on end, and it's like, hmm, I wonder why they got sick. I wonder why they got Victorian London disease. Maybe it's from hanging around outside in Victorian London too much. I will note, uh, something that occurred to me is like, so this is a musical. It is a musical. There aren't that many songs. There aren't a lot of songs, though. And, like, they kind of allow enough time between one song and the next where you kind of start to forget that it's even a musical to begin with and then they shove you into another song and it's like oh yeah yeah and well so i realized as we were starting um our viewing that like neither of us have seen the 1970 scrooge and perhaps like perhaps that's an adaptation that we'll get to some day in the future when we return after another three years away um no promises but you know, so so not having seen the original Scrooge, I really cannot compare, like, the music 
um, between these two. But just looking at sort of like a list of the like the the song tracks, like like the track list for both um, movies, it seems that like they've written a fairly significant number of original songs for this movie, or at the very least, what they've done is taken songs from the 1970 version and like 2020 the hell out of them 2020s them um so that we get like these extremely kind of like radio friendly almost Pasek and paul-esque like look see it's a song from a musical that you could put on the radio um even though they're not very Christmassy, so i'm not sure like exactly what kind of target audience they're going for here um it really kind of accentuates the uh, mobile gaming ad vibe of the whole thing. Right. Like, these these songs, you just kind of feel like they were generated by an AI um, and recorded in, like, two takes and then auto-tuned the hell out of. Um... And they were so contemporary that it took... We got into The Ghost of Christmas Present and his introduction before we realized, like, wait a second, these are actually some of the songs from the 1970s musical. Yeah, there's the I like life part. And I guess now it's about time that we get into the ghost of Christmas present, who's, like, just got this weird thing going on. He's this big, like, alien-looking guy. He's got this kind of, like, Lilo and Stitch alien look to him, and he's got these, like, tiny little alien creatures that just kind of float around all the time when he's around according to the subtitles they're called cheerlings yeah that's something that's not mentioned in dialogue or anything that's something you would only know if you had the subtitles on which we did oh wait a moment i think there's actually something from the past um that's fairly important um because right at the end of the past we get the bit where we see that um well, so just, like, really briefly, we get the kind of, like, the normal, like, Scrooge had this, like, sort of failed romance. We get the addition that she's, like, Fezziwig's daughter, which is not present in the original text. We don't really know anything about her in the original text, other than that, like, she's a girl that Scrooge liked. Um, but so she gets, I guess, a bit more screen time, and then, like, it's... <laughs> I think it's pretty funny, though, that it seems to be presented that, like, Scrooge was just this kind of, like, perfectly normal, nice guy trying to make his way in business, and then seemingly, like, Jacob Marley just kind of, like, snatched him up and made him evil. Um, <laughs> and so we see, uh, like, Marley basically teaching Scrooge how to, like, be evil and send people to debtor's prison. Um, and the person that we see him send to debtor's prison is Bob Cratchit's dad! And we see Bob Cratchit as, like, a toddler being, like, carried away. And he, like, looks right at Scrooge. And Scrooge sort of realizes, wait a minute, he has heterochromia. Yeah, and Bob so... Cratchit has these David Bowie eyes. One is blue, the other is green. And that's, like, the only reason that he realizes, like, wait a second, the kid from Cratchit's Bakery <laughs> was so many Bob cr Cratchit. Because I guess there are so many Cratchits wandering around Victorian London. Well, if this is Dickensian London, everybody's got a crazy-ass name. Cratchit doesn't even, like, right, stick out. Right, right. I mean, when your name is fucking Scrooge, I don't think, like, Cratchit stands out too much. Okay, you yeah, know, but so, so back to the Ghost of Christmas Present. I just, I felt like I needed to talk about the fact that, like, Scrooge and Marley are now, like, single-handedly responsible for making Bob Cratchit poor. He has ruined this man's entire life. And not only that, but, like, Scrooge apparently did not know this. Okay, I also, 
also just sort of a general observation, because I feel like a lot of screen time in this movie is, like, dedicated to Scrooge throwing people in debtor's prisons and, like, like, like literally, like, going to people's offices to, like, try to get, like, like collect debts from them, which is something we don't see Scrooge do. I, so, something that, to me, I think is actually, like, <laughs> something that I appreciate about the original text is that, like, Scrooge's business is, like, just not talked about. Like, he, he could be working in anything, you know? Like, he could be working in accounting, um... He could be, like, like his, his sort of business, I think, is kind of, like, deliberately ambiguous. Because it doesn't matter. Kind of the whole point of the story is that it doesn't really matter. Um, but here, like, we're sort of explicitly told that he's, like, he's a debt collector. Um, which, again, I think kind of well, adds... a money, money lender. That's, tr- that's true. Yeah, he's, he's a money lender, but he also, like, is himself going around, like, door to door, like, asking people to cough up money. Which is not something that, like, I think the original text ever suggests he's doing. And something that I think, I argue, like, makes him much harder to redeem. So, the Ghost of Christmas Present. Uh, he kind of, like, slides into this, uh, just, like, we, we already talked about the cheerlings and all that. Like, it's completely unclear why they got the idea like let's make them alien looking well then you know the cheerlings from dickens's oh yeah of course the cheerlings are a beloved part of the original novel i mean i they're just like a classic part of the christmas tradition in general i mean i like i always put up little like cheerling decorations on Mm -hmm. my mantle of course I don't know if I have too much else to say about the Ghost of Christmas Present. I feel like other other than like his musical number and the aliens, I don't know if there's like all that much that's like particularly distinctive about this version. Well, we do kind of get the parallel between Scrooge's sister and Tiny Tim shoved oh, that's directly right. into our faces again when Tiny Tim sings the same song that Scrooge's sister was singing previously. Yeah, presumably a song that, like, Scrooge's sister taught Tiny Tim in, like, the magical world where, like, tragic waifs come from. So I think if we're if, if we've got nothing else to say about the Ghost of Christmas present, then I think we can turn to the Ghost of Christmas yet to come because the Ghost of Christmas present kind of transforms into the Ghost of Christmas yet to come and then all of his little cheerling aliens that are around him according to the <laughs> subtitles become fearlings, which is a lovely little pun that 99.9% of the viewers are not going to be aware of at all because neither the word cheerling nor fearling is ever said or indicated in any way other than in the subtitles. I have wonder if the subtitler just came up with that on their own. I'd, I'd like to think that there was like a previous, there was an earlier cut of the movie where their, their names were said in some way. And, like, the character designers were really proud of this. And then they're like, you know, we, we gotta cut this. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the Christmas... Ghost of Christmas Present transforming into the Ghost of Christmas yet to come. Um, I think it's, like, a visually interesting move. Like, it, it makes for a very kind of dramatic, like, scene change. However, I would argue um, something that I've always appreciated about the Ghost of Christmas Future and that I think, like, most adaptations are pretty faithful to is that, like, what makes the Ghost of Christmas Future, I think, like, genuinely scary, whereas, like, the other ghosts are just kind of, like, you know, weird or maybe, you know, like, Jacob Marley's spooky, you know, but what I think, like, makes the Ghost of Christmas yet to come, like, genuinely frightening is that we don't know what he looks like. We don't know if he's a he. We we don't we know nothing about the Ghost of Christmas Future. The Ghost of Christmas Future refuses to speak to Scrooge, refuses to like put 
their hood down. We sometimes all we see are just sort of like glowing eyes or like nothing at all underneath the ho the hood. And so I think like actually seeing the Ghost of Christmas present transform into the Ghost of Christmas yet to come ruins that illusion a little bit. And so then we get into this scene where Tom Jenkins, the toy shop owner guy that Scrooge was about to put out of business, uh, is like leading this kind of parade through the streets of London. And Scrooge is like, hey, you know, the future is really not so bad. Uh, what he doesn't realize is that there are this parade is his like funeral procession and everybody's happy because Scrooge is dead. And now, see, the thing about that is they choose to have us, the audience, be made aware of this by having the dog. <laughs> Here, here's, here's where the dog actually has a purpose for existing in the story. And as I said earlier, it's not very well executed. The reason the dog is in the story to begin with is because the dog runs over and sees that it's actually Scrooge's coffin and his coffin has got a label on it that says Ebenezer Scrooge, as you do with coffins. You put a label on them saying, you know, who's in there. Well, I mean, it was Victorian London. You know, they, they wanted to make sure it was, like, super easy for body snatchers to make sure that they were getting the right body. Of course. And so the dog sees this and goes, whoa, because apparently the dog can read. <laughs> The dog can read, but unfortunately has no way of communicating this information to Ebenezer Scrooge, who is, like, you know, woefully unaware of the fact that, like, there is literally an entire street parade uh, celebrating his demise. Yeah, so the dog kind of runs over and tugs on Scrooge's coattails, and Scrooge is like, yeah, I know, it's great, this parade is awesome. I will say that this number was possibly my favorite, because, like, this was the only one that actually sounded like it was from a musical from 1970. Like, it just, ha it had a kind of, like, old-timey charm that I think that, like, this movie is otherwise, like, entirely lacking. Um, but, <laughs> however, I, I can't judge the way that this is presented in the 1970 version, but at least in this version, I think that, like, this music, this number to me felt, like, far darker than, like, they maybe intended. Or at least, like, darker, darker than, like, anything else in the film. Like, if, if, if the rest of the movie is almost kind of sugary sweet, or at the very least just kind of bland... Then, like, this this was a scene that was genuinely very dark to me. Um, you know, wa wa watching an old man, like, taking part in a street parade um, that is <laughs> constructed entirely to celebrate the fact that he's dead, and now we no longer have to, like, pay our debts to him. Well, I mean, that's just a generally fun activity for people to do. I mean, yeah. You see it happen all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I've taken part in a few, you know, like, coffin dances in my time. Um, I, I think there's something particularly dark about, like, Jenkins actually dancing, like, on top of his coffin. Like, not, ju not just around, not just, like, parading his coffin through the streets. But, like, he actually gets up on that coffin and starts dancing on it. Just to, like, really, really drive home how happy these people are that Scrooge is dead. And so then, I thought this was kind of confusingly executed is we then kind of just jump to the cemetery because it, it is christmas of course because we can only see christmas yeah it's, it's a world the, of christmases it's the ghost of christmas yet to come uh so scrooge like and the dog get transported to the cemetery but uh 
like Bob Cratchit is there kind of like mourning Tiny Tim who is like he's buried under this like wooden cross that just says Tim Cratchit uh and then while they're there at the cemetery that's when the funeral procession comes in and Scrooge realizes like oh that whole parade thing that was they were celebrating me dying which I don't know I feel like he really probably should have figured that out a little sooner well if he had just listened to the dog if he had just listened to the dog who can read and who is Scrooge's dog I mean if you have a dog that can read you probably should listen to them See, I think, like, they, see, this, this, like, you know, plays into my earlier point about how, like, Scrooge really should have put that dog to work. Like, Prudence should have been, like, helping him collect debts. He should have, Prudence should have been, like, you know, threatening to bite people if they didn't pay up. Well, maybe, I mean, because Scrooge, like, he seems to be just kind of taking the dog around as he collects debts. So maybe that is the case, and we just don't get to see it happen. And so maybe that's why the dog needs to be reformed as well. Oh, yeah. Although, it, <laughs> surely then, like, the dog should have had its own separate, like, experience. <laughs> Shouldn't have been, like, just kind of tagging along with Scrooge the entire time. Perhaps not. Um, and so then, I think, this is honestly my final observation. Oh, well, wait, because, like, oh, okay. I think we have a few more things well, to say. Because, like, I thought it was kind of cool how, like, Scrooge gets buried and then like the moment his like coffin goes into the ground like you see the ghost of scrooge and all these chains like rise oh, yeah, up that was my final observation in the same in the same way as marley was okay yeah i i actually i do think that that's like kind of well okay i'm a little bit torn because i think that it's cool that like oh he becomes the same kind of ghost that marley does my only problem, though, is that, like, having that be the sort of ending moment, I think, really does kind of make it seem more like Scrooge is changing out of fear. Yeah. Like, having that be the final thing that Scrooge sees, I think, like, allows for an in- interpretation that's more along the lines of, like, and remember, if you're bad, you'll go to hell. As opposed to a, a, a as opposed to, like, you know, Scrooge changing, not just because, like, oh, I'm gonna die, or oh, because I'm gonna be a scary ghost, but changing because he realizes that, like, oh, I've died and no one cares. I've died and people are actually, like, actively celebrating my death. You know, I, I don't want to be this person who no one mourns for. That that was actually my final observation. I don't have many thoughts about the, like, post- uh, ghost scenes i think yeah, they're like so fairly generic pretty conventional he like he wakes up in the morning what day is it why it's christmas day uh he goes to he he gets like the orphans from earlier the kind of ragtag bunch of orphans to go do some errands for him pull together all the stuff that's needed to make like a big christmas feast and then he invites like cratchit and his nephew and all the people that owe him money and I don't know why they actually bother to show up, but they do. And one of the, one of the people that he invites is the person who, in the future, was dancing on his casket, which is a little bit awkward for Scrooge because he's seen that happen. But it's also maybe a little bit awkward for the guy because, for all we know, he might have already been like planning this in advance. Yeah, I sort of assumed that he already, because, I mean, that was an extremely elaborate dance number, so I, I just kind of assumed that he'd already been, like, recruiting people and, like, teaching them the choreography and, like, writing the lyrics, so it might be a little bit awkward to have to then announce, 
um, you know, send something out to the list host and be like, hey guys, scrap. Scrap the musical number where we celebrate his death. He's cool now. Well, I mean, the song is like, thank you very much. So I so guess... So it could be genuine. Right. They could just turn it from a sarcastic song <laughs> into a sincere one. Right. So sort of, sort of a, like, you know, I hope you had the time of your life. Sort of like, like people using that song genuinely at like graduation ceremonies and stuff. It could be like that. Exactly. So that is Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Um... Do you have any kind of general concluding thoughts, overall observations, like bigger picture points? I think we kind of covered like the themes of this particular adaptation. To me, I think that like, I really just can't stop thinking about that Letterboxd review that called it like a mobile game ad. And I think that partly what that review is getting at is just how sort of sanitized and corporate this version feels, I don't think it's too surprising that it was, like, animated by Netflix's animation studio that apparently exists. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, while, while it, it definitely has some kind of, like, you know, interesting visual gimmicks, um, some character designs that are, like, you know, somewhat original and, like, intriguing, Overall, I think that there's just something a bit soulless about this adaptation, and I think that really kind of, like, is driven home by just how insistent this adaptation is on, like, you know, foregoing any kind of subtlety or nuance. Like, I, I think the kind of just repeated attempts to, like, beat us over the head with, like, oh, do you get it? Do you get why he hates Christmas? To me, just kind of feels like a, you know, like, like, yeah, it, it, it feels like a sanitized Christmas carol. A Christmas carol without any kind of, like, bite or edge or, like, social commentary. It's all, it's all individualized. You know, there, there, there's no kind of, like, oh, we'll send them to the workhouses and then he learns a lesson about why workhouses are bad. Um, it's, it's, it's a very... In some ways, he's actually kind of less mean, even though he is, like, very theatrically jerky. Yeah, he's theatrically jerky, but he also, like, it's a, it's a very, like tight narrative and i guess by that i mean that like the whole kind of world of this version seems to like revolve around scrooge and we get very little of the kind of scope of dickens's original story you know where like the ghost of christmas present takes him to like this random island and you see these like lighthouse keepers who are having you, you, you get nothing of that sense of like scrooge learning a broader lesson about humanity or about you know 19th century capitalism right i mean i think if there's one word you would use to describe the character of Ebenezer Scrooge it would be cold and this Scrooge is a lot of things throughout the story he's never cold no no he's he's warm with like hatred <laughs> he's warm with spite he's and, and as I said earlier I think something that just kind of fundamentally ruins this Scrooge for me is that this is not a man who needs to be reminded of his past perhaps he needs to like look to his past to learn different lessons from it but it honestly like to me he doesn't really seem like a man who needs the spirits because like he already he already knows that Tiny Tim is sick he sees that literally from his window he already has these kind of permanent reminders of like his ex-fiance his dead sister like this this is a man his, his problem is not ignorance you know it, it's more it's maliciousness and i think that it maybe takes a little bit more than like ghosts to get rid of maliciousness all right so if we're done with talking about the movie then i think we can move on to part two here yeah so we have um 
a very special sub-episode of trying to adapt here for you guys. Um, so, in case I hadn't already made it clear, I just got back from a study abroad from London. Um, in, in case you couldn't tell by my British accent. Um, and while I was there, I actually took a class I mentioned earlier where we read A Christmas Carol and then we had the good fortune of seeing a production of A Christmas Carol, a theatrical staging, um, at London's Old Vic Theatre. Um, and so, yeah, this is a production that I had actually seen a bunch of, like, tube ads for everywhere. This is a, you know, famous theatre, um, well-known, fairly well-known, um, cast of actors, um... And definitely, I, I would say, like, the thing that sort of struck me about this theatrical staging the most is just sort of, like, how high budget it was. Like, there were just a lot of... It, it, it was very theatrical, and it was very much a spectacle. And so we get, like, these kind of fancy, like, light displays. There was, um... Well, I'll, I'll get into it. I'll get into it. Um... And so, this is partly a very special episode because Ben did not see this adaptation. There was really no way of, for me to, like, expose him to it. Um, so I'm just gonna sort of, like, talk about um, some of the points that I, like, hurriedly, hur hurriedly scribbled down um, immediately after the show. And then Ben can interject with any questions that he has. Um, yeah, we'll just see this is going to be mostly you, but we'll see. Yeah, and I'll try to keep it quick because nobody wants to listen to just me for that long. Um, but right off the bat, to me, I think that, like, one one of the few... I actually described this in my notes as unpardonable. Like, to me, to me, this is a kind of a... Um, this is, like, a deadly sin of, like, Christmas Carol, adap like, adaptation, is that Scrooge can interact with, like, the visions in the past. Like, when the Ghost of Christmas Past takes this Scrooge into the past, he actually, like, like, he, he kind of, um, like, like, as, as opposed to seeing a younger version of himself doing these things, he kind of, like, becomes the younger version of himself, and is then, like, speaking to people in the past. I don't know what you make of that, but to me, that feels, like, unforgivable. Well, I would, I, I have to ask, like, does he do and say different things than he did in the real past? Well, I think that's kind of unclear because we don't see the past other than the one that he inhabits. But so, I mean, like, it, it's not it's not something where, like, he is put into the role of his past self and is just kind of forced to reenact exactly what he did in real life. Yeah, it definitely seems like he has, like, a bit of free will. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd because, I mean, definitely, like, when he becomes, like, he kind of, like, becomes childlike, you know? So, I mean, it's like, he definitely is, is kind of embodying his child self. But, I mean, there's no, like, he's wearing the same exact costume and, like, you know, he's, I, I don't know. I, I wish, like, th this did, I, I did see this adaptation nearly a month ago now, so I wish I could tell you the specifics of, like, you know, he, whether or not his dialogue implies that these are, like, original things he's saying, but, I don't know. To me, that felt, to me, that felt unpardonable. Um, the other thing, one of the other things that to me, maybe less unpardonable and a bit more just kind of like, I, I guess to me, um, so, so something that really kind of ground, grounded, 
grinded my gears, ground my ground gears, gears, ground my gears about this adaptation um, is that Scrooge gets like a tragic, abusive dad backstory. Um, normally, Scrooge's dad is like completely the, the only member of like Scrooge's family from his youth that we get to see is his sister, and like his sister does mention something about sort of like. Oh, you know, like, 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 father is, like, changed. Like, I think there is, there, I think there's definitely an implication in the original text that, like, Scrooge's dad doesn't like him very much and is probably also kind of an ass. And I, but the thing for me is, I think we can sort of deduce that, you know? Like, I, I think that that's something, I think that's something that we don't have to be told about Scrooge. That, like, oh, he didn't have a very, like, happy home life. I think that that's something that we can, like, more or less assume from the fact that, like, we don't even see him celebrate Christmas with his parents as a kid, you know? Like, his parents are just sort of out of the picture. Like, he's left at some boarding school and his sister has to be the one to be like, oh, dad said you can come home now. <laughs> and so, like, we literally, we get, like, this fa these fairly gratuitous scenes where, like, you know, adult Scrooge has, like, embodied his child self and then his dad is, like, you know, kicking him around and stuff. And it's like, okay, we get it. To me, these kinds of, like, sort of what we were saying, you know, the kind of, like, you know, Cruella hates Dalmatians because, like, her mom got killed by one. To me, there's something kind of insidious about the sort of insistence on, like, tragic backstories um, as almost kind of, like, excuses for characters' later failings, so that, like, you know, here, here we're given, like, these, like, like, again, it's kind of beaten over, over our heads that, like, oh, Scrooge hates Christmas because, like, his dad would, like, beat him on Christmas and be like, I hate Christmas. <laughs> like, oh, get it? Like, his abusive dad hated Christmas, too, so that's why he hates Christmas. Like, that's why he beats people and says, I hate Christmas. Right. Like, I, I guess it's, like, first of all, I think that there's something kind of, like, oddly deterministic about this, you know, that sort of, like, all it takes to, like, make somebody hate Christmas is just to, like, I don't know, like, do something bad to them on Christmas once. Like, it's, it's this extremely simplistic view of human nature. But I, I think that the insidious part, though, is, like, the, the sort of, like, assumption that people are bad because they've had bad things done to them and that this is kind of a, like, universal law of human nature. And, and that also, I, I think that there's always this kind of, like, sense of, um, you know, I, I think it's one thing to feel sympathy for a character, but I think it's another thing to kind of, like, go as far as to suggest that, like, these past experiences excuse Scrooge from his bad behavior. Um, and I, and I think that, like, I, I would actually argue that Dickens' original story walks this line very effectively. You know, I, I don't think that, like, the bad, I, I don't think that, like, the unhappy memories that we see in Scrooge's backstory are ever, ever go as far as to kind of suggest that, like, oh, now we understand why Scrooge is like this and therefore he's off the hook. But I do think that, like, including this very dramatic sort of, like, tragic backstory, abusive dad who literally, like, you know, stomps about talking about how much he hates Christmas. Like, to me, this is another manifestation of the kind of, like, beat-you-over-the-head style of adapting A Christmas Carol. Um, and... 
Yeah, I said this was something that I observed in um, Scrooge or Christmas Carol too. Um, but if anybody is familiar with Darman videos, I think that there's something particularly Darman esque about like you know having Scrooge hate Christmas in these extreme for these extremely specific and obvious reasons. Like, oh, you know, Scrooge's dad is like particularly mean about Christmas, and like, oh, he's he's obsessed with money. All he talks about is like money and how much he hates Christmas. It's like, get it, get it. This is why Scrooge is like this. I, to, to me, it's just like it's it's psycho. It has, it has to be an exact parallel, right? If, if if it if we don't have every single detail line up perfectly, people aren't going to understand what we're going for. Yeah, to me, like it's lazy. It's psychologically shallow. Um, and then to sort of move on, um, something that like something that's very weird about Scrooge to me in this version is that he repeatedly. Like, like, this version, Scrooge is a social climber, not just in the sense that he's always looking to gain money, but, like, specifically, he's trying to gain prestige. And, like, something that he kind of, like, repeatedly refers to is the idea of, like, becoming and being a great man. Like, he, he kind of repeatedly, like, like al almost sort of to suggest that, like, oh, well, you know, morality doesn't matter for me because I'm a great man. Um, which is interesting it's an interesting addition to scrooge's psyche but i think that it, it doesn't quite work for me because i think that like scrooge is interesting as a character because like to me the original scrooge and you may disagree with me but like to me the original scrooge cares solely about gain for the sake of gain and like the idea of like being wealthy or being like prestigious doesn't really seem to matter to him right see like his whole character is that he's a miser so he doesn't want money to spend it. He doesn't want to, like, live lavishly. In fact, like, he lives quite, like, he, he lives a very ascetic lifestyle, you know? And, and that's part of what's, like, so kind of tragic. And, and I think that that's also what makes him more sympathetic. I think it's sort of easier for us to feel sympathetic for this, like, old man who lives in this, like, cold, dark house. As opposed to somebody who's, like, you know, who's this kind of, like, grasping social climber. I think that, like, it's a lot easier to, like, feel sympathy for a character who is obsessed with gain, but also, like, doesn't really care what he does with it. And it's he. It's also easier for him to turn good in the end. He can just kind of take some of the money that he's got lying around and give it out to people rather than being like, gee, I gotta find somebody who's willing to buy my yacht off me so I can <laughs> make some donations to charity from it. Right, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna move now to what I think is the, by far the most insane part of this adaptation. Which is that Scrooge is responsible for Fezziwig's death. <laughs> so let me elaborate. And so, so this version, go and, and this makes me sort of wonder if, like, maybe there's kind of a hidden thread of adaptations that, like, like, like maybe we need to turn to like the 1970s Scrooge or something to kind of like pick up on this because this version also turned Scrooge into like a moneylender specifically and specifically somebody who's like out to collect people's debts, which again, like, is not present in the original text. Um, okay. Also, I nearly forgot to mention that Fezziwig. Fezziwig's profession is also given in this adaptation. He's an undertaker. So he is, like, he, like, he makes coffins. He, like, you know, runs funerals and stuff. So, so he, he's in, like, the funerary business. Um, and so Scrooge 
Scrooge, I guess, like, decides, like, fuck undertaking, I'm gonna be a moneylender now instead because it makes the big bucks. Um, it's a common career trajectory. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, like everyone starts out in, like, undertaking. You know, I mean, that's that, that's that's a job for boys. Real men become moneylenders. It's a real entry-level kind of position. Right, right. Um, and so... You're, you're just there to develop skills that you'll use in other areas of society. Right, like moneylending. Um... And so apparently, apparently Scrooge made the right decision because Fezziwig's business does not go very well and he becomes indebted to Scrooge. And then like, it, it's, it's basically told to us that like, oh, you know, being in debt was like so hard for Fezziwig that like, you know, he was like an old man and like died in poverty. <laughs> well, I think that's always, I don't, I don't think it's usually made explicit like that by having Scrooge literally take over Fezziwig's business, but... I think that that's always kind of implied that, like, oh, you know, the Fezziwigs of the world have been kind of, like, trampled underfoot by the Scrooges of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair, but at the same time, like, I think, to me, I think it's really important that we don't really see what happens to Fezziwigs' business, because I think that, like, the Fezziwig example is kind of there to teach Scrooge a lesson about how it could be, like, it's, it's almost kind of like a utopian ideal, you know? Like, Fezziwig is sort of there to, like, provide Scrooge an example of how one can be maybe a more ethical capitalist. And, and, and to me, honestly, I think that, like, like I, um, I, I talked about this in my class, um, that, like, that's actually something that I think is, is one of the weaker elements of A Christmas Carol, and where it may be kind of, like, where, where Charles Dickens kind of shops, stops short of, like, a truly radical message, you know, that he kind of seems to be suggesting that, like, well, there's nothing with running your business as long as you're not an a-, a complete asshole about it. And I think that, like, that's kind of what Fezziwig is there to do. Well, it's also kind of a muddled message, just because, like... The fact that Fezziwig, you know, did not succeed. Like, that's exactly why Scrooge turned out the way he did, at least in part, is because he didn't want to end up like Fezziwig. And so he was, you know, willing to do whatever he needed to do to get that money, to make sure that his business was going to stay profitable no matter what. He, like, the the experience of seeing this beloved figure kind of go under because he was so nice and generous... I think, kind of traumatized Scrooge. And that gives him kind of a reason for why he is the way he is. And that's part of the reason why the original story and most adaptations don't really get into what exactly happened to Fezziwig, because it's like, the more we look into that, the more we realize, like, wait a second, maybe Scrooge shouldn't turn nice. Right, right. No, I, I agree that the message is definitely muddled. And I think that, like, in the hands of a more competent, like writer i i think that like you could maybe do something sort of interested interesting and complicated with like you know the sort of moral dynamics there but like i i guess in this adaptation it just didn't quite work for me um partly because i think like having scrooge be responsible for fezziwig's device again like kind of puts way more moral onus on him that's like than present in the original text and i think like to me something you always kind of have to be thinking about with your scrooges is like you know, how how much does he actually have to undo? You know, like, how how many sins do we know that he's committed? How bad of a guy has he been? Because I think that, like, he... he uh, to me, I don't think he can be too bad, or else the idea of him having this redemption in one night is far less believable, you know? I think he has to just kind of be... Yeah, he has to be an asshole, but kind of teetering on the edge of, like, you know, like, I, I don't think he can fully fall into sort of, like, 
you know, the moral pit. But here I think he, that, like, being he, responsible for his own beloved boss's demise and, like, killing him with poverty, to me, I think that that goes a step too far. And he also can't be, as in the Netflix version, he can't be personally responsible for putting half of London out of work. <laughs> right. Right. Um, this version, this um, Old Vic adaptation, does something that the Netflix movie does as well, which is that Scrooge is in love with Fezziwig's daughter. However, something that I thought was really weird about this version, given that it is like a you know stage production in the year of our Lord 2022, is that we get this almost kind of like very old fashioned gender politics thing going on where like we never we never get a grand breakup scene between Scrooge and his fiance, which even Charles Dickens gives like, you know, the woman the chance to like say her piece. But rather, like, we get an exchange with Fezziwig, where, like, Fezziwig is sort of explaining to Scrooge, like, why his daughter won't marry him. <laughs> As I said in my notes, why are we silencing women, Old Vic? <laughs> That's that's not like as that's not nearly as critical of a take as some of my others, but well, I thought that that was you odd. You can't blame her for not wanting to have a conversation with him directly. Yeah, I, Dad, <laughs> can you? St- <laughs> Dad, can you please break up with this guy for me? Um, so that a lot, was a lot odd. of girls do that today. <laughs> right. I mean, the number of times I've asked Dad to break up with someone for me, it's kind of embarrassing. Totally. Um. Okay, so this is my final point, but it's kind of a long-winded one, but I promise I'll be done talking about this stage show after this. Um, this Scrooge is an asshole, and it takes him so long to show any semblance of not being an asshole. Um, I appreciate that this adaptation didn't go the route of, like, you know, because we've talked about adaptations before where he's kind of like a dick right up until where he sees he's gonna die, (laughs) and then that's the thing that makes him flip. We don't get that here. Like, it's not his impending death that makes him change his mind, um, but, but, but what it does suggest is that Scrooge only changes because he learns that, like, there are people who already, like, love and care about him, and all he has to do is to sort of, like, open up his heart to receive this love. I'm not a fan of this kind of redemption, because, like, to me, Scrooge's redemption is far more powerful if he isn't, like, if there if there's not kind of, like, explicit gain to be had. You know what I mean? I mean, like, he knows, like, 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 to me, I think it's really powerful that, like, Scrooge knows what kind of future he wants to prevent, but he doesn't necessarily know, like, what he's going to receive. You know, like, he doesn't know that, like, if he's nice to, like, his nephew and Bob Cratchit, that they'll, like, forgive him for being an asshole for the next, for the last, like, however many years. You know, I, I think that there's something, like, far more human and, like, a lot more, like, I think there's something really vulnerable, even if it's not necessarily, like, drawn out in the text. Um, about Scrooge in the moment where he decides to, like, radically change his behavior. Because, like, he doesn't know how people are going to react. He doesn't, like, um, and, and I think it is true. I, th- I think that this adaptation is tr- is right in showing that, like, oh, look, see, like, his nephew cares about him. And, like, Bob Cratchit cares about him. But the thing is that, like, like, Scrooge already kind of gets a sense of that in, like, the christmas future in the in the christmas present scenes like he already sort of gets a sense that like oh like bob cratchit and like fred would be happy to have me come over i just need to like you know reach out to them um but i i, I guess like 
this adaptation just kind of really seemed to drive home the idea that, like, what makes Scrooge change is that, like, he learns that, like, oh, if I were just a little bit nicer, people would, like, you know, have all this, like, you know, love and, and friendship and affection to show me. Um, which to me just, it, it feels, like, far too transactional to be, like, a truly satisfying motive for change. Um... I think that the moral is far more is far stronger in versions, and I would argue that the original story is for the most part like this too. I think it's far stronger if Scrooge like comes to love others not because like oh they already love me, but because they don't. You know that that like he he opens his heart up in this moment where he actually has like no idea really like if he's still capable of being loved. He doesn't know if, like, maybe he's already too far gone to, like, be fully welcomed into, like, his nephew's home or into, like, you know, Bob Cratchit's family. I think that that makes his redemption far more powerful than, like, beating the audience over the head with the idea that, like, oh, you know, love and friendship are, like, right there. All he has to do is put in the minimal amount of effort and then he'll, like, be a happy man. All right. Well, I have not seen this version, so I'm just going to have to trust your analysis and judgment <laughs> on that. And with that, I think we have one little sub-sub episode to get to before we're done here for the evening. Yep, we've just got a little a little treat, a little cheerling at the oh. end of this episode for you. Or perhaps a fearling. Perhaps a fearling. Because just before we uh, went on the microphone here, uh, I had Nora watch a commercial for NyQuil cough syrup from 1968 where uh, Scrooge hates Christmas because he just coughs and has a cold the whole time. And then uh, I guess it's Bob Cratchit who's like, tried NyQuil. What, okay, really quick. What I think is particularly funny about Bob Cratchit being the one to like offer him the medicine is that like, you know, for, for, I, I think famously part of Bob Cratchit's deal is that he's got this, like, sick child at home. <laughs> so, like, I don't know, there's something just kind of funny to me about, like, wait a minute, like, is Bob Cratchit, like, stealing some of Tiny Tim's NyQuil to, like, give to his mean boss? That doesn't seem very fair. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, I, I guess this is, if, if, if NyQuil had existed in the world... Yeah, oh, Tiny Tim needed with some cough medicine, I think. Exactly. I think... He... That, that would fix his leg. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is always kind of ambiguous as to what Tiny Tim is sick with. He's just Victorian. That's... He's, he's got Victorian wasting disease. But NyQuil would fix that, I think. It's, it's the opposite of this would kill a Victorian child. Like, this, this would heal a Victorian child. All right. Well, it is just about 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve. We're not going to bother editing this episode at all. It's going to be full of ums and uhs and likes and awkward pauses and uh, misstatements. But whatever. Merry Christmas to one and all. I, I, I think that's kind of like our... God bless us, everyone. There we go. Thank you.